Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, we're talking with Amy Maxman, who is senior reporter for Nature. She's covered disease and the politics behind disease, including the Ebola crisis in Africa. And we're talking to her about that and this. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Improve the quality of your solitude with a subscription to the LRB. They'll send you exceptional analysis of the politics, economics, sociology and science behind the crisis and reportage from around the world, but also gloriously unrelated, richly immersive distraction from the world's best authors and critics writing about history and philosophy, art and technology, fiction and poetry. Just go to lrb.me talk and get your first 12 issues for just £12. That's lrb.me talk. Helen and I spoke to Amy on Tuesday evening. It was Tuesday morning, as you'll hear. Amy is in San Francisco. And I started by asking her, as I do many of our guests, how lockdown is going there. Well, not much has really lifted here. I think it was like golf courses can resume, which I think is a, a very small percent of the population will be excited about that. Everything's pretty fine here. We have a, you know, the curve is flattened. So people are feeling pretty good about that. At the same time, it's getting warmer and people are getting sort of exhausted of staying inside. So you know, friends of mine that were completely isolated before are, are now getting together for dinner parties and things like that. So it's it's slowly loosening. I think it's loosening, not just as a matter of policy, but just as a matter of like, you know, human behavior stuff. Right. So we'll probably come back to the human behavior stuff. Amy, you've covered epidemics in many parts of the world, including Ebola in some of the poorest countries of the world. You reported last year from the Democratic Republic of Congo about the epidemic there. As this epidemic, COVID, started to spread, did you find yourself thinking that there were parallels with what you'd seen before, or did it immediately start to feel very different? Yeah, there was a a lot of parallels because a lot of the kind of same actions that happened and a lot of the same problems sort of came up. And I guess that was actually surprising to me that it was so similar. You know, everything from the reaction of people when concerts were canceled in the earlier days where people were surprised that concerts were canceled to schools being canceled and parents being frustrated at having to take care of their kids and and try and teach from home. So there were just there was a number of parallels. Because when we I'm guessing most people, when they think about something like Ebola and somewhere like the DRC, they tend to assume it must be a very different kind of experience that it must impact on people in radically different ways. That's not your experience of it, to start with anyway. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the countries are extremely different, but there are a number of parallels, you know, even down to mistrust for the government, and also sort of the way that this affects families, and people who share households so closely. So sort of the trauma of it is sort of similar too. When you were there, you write about this, there was a vaccine, there is a vaccine, there are drugs that can mitigate the disease. And yet, the problem was access. So this epidemic, which was ravaging some communities, and you quote a WHO official, I think the lead official on the ground there, saying of the Ebola outbreak in the DRC, 
that the disease, the outbreak is the symptom, but the root cause of what's going on is politics, political instability. And when I read that, I felt there must be some parallels with what we're seeing now, and not just in poor places throughout the world, in developed countries too, that the politics is at the root cause of a lot of this. Did you get that feeling too from the beginning with the COVID pandemic? You know, what outbreaks do is they really, anything that was a slight crack that maybe people could just kind of ignore before becomes huge sort of during an outbreak. And so when I was talking before one answered the last question, it was more about Sierra Leone during the West Africa outbreak in 2013 to 2016. That was before there was a vaccine or known drugs. But yeah, in both cases, then and in the outbreak in DRC, I had people tell me just what you just read from Dr. Chedros, that these reveal political and systemic issues. You know, what's similar between the two is something that was hard to explain to people from here about the outbreak in DRC is that the political instability that was in Eastern DRC had a lot to do with why that outbreak was bad. So for example, the fact that it was in an area that was in opposition to the government and then had been in opposition to the government for a long time meant that you're going to have a lot less trust from anybody who is either from the capital of Kinshasa across the country or is associated with the government or even health authorities like the World Health Organization that work with the government. So it plays out like that. And then there were political leaders who were local to the Northeast region that would also sort of make the outbreak into a political issue. And also when the president of the DRC in December, when he decided to not allow people to vote in some of the cities that were hit hardest by Ebola, that kind of cemented all of these sort of conspiracy theories that actually Ebola was being used as a tool to suppress the opposition. And we see a lot of similar sort of themes playing out right now in the U.S. What I was going to say is, is that's really interesting. What what was in the end the, the political fallout for the politics in the DRC because there's the point in which the you know the crisis starts the virus starts and it essentially destabilizes the existing fault lines and then there's a question is as well does it take then the politics to somewhere different or is actually the post pandemic epidemic politics essentially the older one with simply deepened conflicts the way that this was kind of overcome so how it happened at first is there were a lot of kind of bubbling ideas that Ebola was actually more about marginalizing people who were in opposition to the government. You know, for example, if it means a lack of jobs, lack of trade, things like that. And then when something big happened, such as in that case, it was delaying or not allowing people to vote, that kind of crystallized things that resulted in huge amounts of violence. So there was a lot of kind of violence against the Ebola response for the next few months, to the point where even Doctors Without Borders had pulled out of the area. How was it overcome? I think what happened was Dr. Tedros, along with other people, such as Dr. Moyambe, somebody who leads the infectious disease research in DRC, they made a concerted effort to reach out to members of the opposition parties or just local leaders, you know, even if those are pastors, and really convince them This isn't about politics. We have to just do a public health response no matter what side you're on. This is the way to win people's favor is to do what's healthy for them. So it took a lot of like in-person meetings and just really appealing that they 
just focus on the public health response and not so much on the politics right now. And it wasn't a matter of only going to, you know, say the president and the Ministry of Health and having them relay this message. So that was that was the way that it became more under control so that people would listen to whoever they're listening to um, and then kind of take ownership for wanting to also do the things that are good for public health. As you were describing it, it's hard not to see the parallels with the United States, I mean, absent the violence for now, we, and we hope for good. But the big difference is it's almost impossible to imagine in a US context, someone like Dr. Tedros from the World Health Organization being the, the broker, the person who comes in and somehow manages to get beneath or beyond the politics and communicate with people directly. There's almost no scenario in which, unless I'm missing something, you can think of a international public health official playing that kind of role anywhere in the United States. Am I right? Yeah, you're right. I mean, the reason why WHO could have such a a leading role in the DRC was because there was a vacuum of leadership. In the U.S., we don't have a financial need like DRC had, and they had sort of a very weak health system. So that was why WHO could step in. In this case, you know, I guess the only parallels were kind of hoping, uh, you know, counting on people like Tony Fauci or some of the scientists to sort of try and not speak to the Democrats or the Republicans, but instead just sort of keep a steady focus on what's the science here. But I don't know how well it's going. I was going to say, how well is it going? It's not. And there's shouts to say fire Fauci. So you know, there's pushback on that. Isn't there as well, though, the difference in this case is, is that there is no way of escaping in the politics of the United States or indeed, you know, any other country presently suffering under this pandemic from the issue of how to deal with the health risks in relation to the economic risks, because what happened in, in the DRC did not lead to a world economic shutdown, which is essentially what's happened during this crisis. And then the question of, well, how do you come back from that economically whilst at the same time trying to minimise the health risks is becoming the overwhelming political question now. So we've gone beyond simply a question of the politics of a health crisis to the politics of a simultaneous health and economic crisis. Yeah, outbreaks are always bad for the economy and certainly this one is worse. It's bigger and and the transmissibility of this means that the measures have to be even more severe when we don't have things like testing and contact tracing. And this one is a pandemic, and that one was an epidemic. I mean, this is everywhere. Yep. I mean, it is now literally everywhere. As you saw it spread, was there a point at which you sensed that this was the big one? I mean, that you shift into a different register and thinking about how you report it, how you cover it, because suddenly it drew in the whole world. And it's happened so quickly as well. We've talked about it on this podcast. I mean, early March, we were having conversations. We had a conversation after Super Tuesday, which isn't that long ago, where we somehow were still in that old world. And now we're in this completely different, it feels like, world with a different set of connections and shared risks. Or did you know all the way along this is how it was going to pan out? I didn't think the US would have quite this much of a failed response. I didn't think it was would be this bad here. I was under the impression, I think, having come back from the Ebola outbreak in Sierra Leone between, you know, I went there multiple times. So in 2015, having come back from that, then the CDC checked in on me. I had the impression that we had a very strong health public health system. I was naive in thinking that we would be better at not letting this spread so much. And I also 
because maybe I've traveled to so many countries that don't have the basic equipment that you need to diagnose the disease. They don't have PCR machines or they have very few. I also thought because we have such strong research capacity here and there's so many high-tech labs, that's not going to be an issue for us. And it's definitely been an issue. That's what surprised me. I think probably in late February, I started feeling worried because the outbreak was clearly spreading around the world and there were sort of no checks put on traveling into the U.S. I came back from Portugal in late February and nobody at the airport asked had I been to Italy, even though cases were above 300 there at the time. So that's when I started getting nervous and it sort of got cemented when on March 1st, I went to Seattle, Washington, and that's where I met some researchers who they had been looking at the sequences of the virus spreading in Seattle. And they realized that they had strong evidence that it had been circulating for a long time. There was clear transmission within communities. So that means under the radar, not being diagnosed. And they had been sort of pushing and pushing to do more tests. So when I saw them and I heard their fear about how it's completely not contained, that's when I was suddenly aware of like, oh, this could be really bad here. And when you heard them, you got privileged information in a sense, and then that message spread relatively quickly publicly. Did you assume at that point that there would be a public response that once people in government knew what you knew, that the system would step up? Or by that point, were you already thinking this is beyond our ability to control it? I thought the system would step up. Because while I was there also, I saw the, the labs I was with, they had ramped up their testing capability and they were, uh, they were staying up all night. They were, they were throwing themselves into this. And Seattle, it turns out, has a very strong public health department. So they were also on top of it. But then in the weeks that followed, I started hearing that a lot of counties across the U.S. had decided they're not going to do the contact tracing component, which is sort of a key step in making sure that this chain of transmission person to person to person doesn't just keep going. So you make sure that those contacts are quarantined. Early on, the U.S. was just sort of making this decision to not do that. So the lack of tests coupled with the failure to do contact tracing and quarantine, that's when I started losing even more hope that it might be okay here. And what do you put that down to? I mean, is this partly because we simply don't have in in Western countries the, the psychology for dealing with a pandemic? Or do you think in the United States in particular that the federal nature of American politics and what's the responsibility of the federal government, what's the responsibility of the states, and then the hollowing out of some of the federal agencies, including that dealing with disease under Donald Trump, has played a significant part in the way that things have played out in the US? Kind of all of the above, I think, because of... The fact that we haven't faced a pandemic for a very long time, there was no sense of the sort of coordination this requires at a very high level. States have become very federated. And then on top of that, there's very rigid systems, you know, with our privatized healthcare system, people have ways of doing things and it's not easy for them to do something else and to move fast. Like you need to move in an outbreak, you need to do move really fast. So when I've reported in you know, Sierra Leone or Liberia or the Congo, often what happens is there's like rapid hiring and systems change. People are hired on quickly to do one job or another to participate in the response. And I feel like that 
doesn't happen easily in the U.S. And the only way it could happen would be if there was, say, a very strong public health body, which would probably be the CDC, saying this is exactly how we should be doing things. And also there should be some budget behind it because it costs money to do those things. So this is partly a hindsight question, but if you think back to the 1st of March and when you went to Seattle and based on what you knew of other epidemics in Africa that you'd studied, and at that point, if they'd said to you, so what does the nation need to do? What does the United States need to do to ensure that we stay on top of this? What would have been the number one priority then from your perspective? What was the thing you'd have thought this, the no brainer that we have to do next is? Well, it was a good move at that point, seeing that there was clearly spread that was not being detected, spread in communities. That's where you get the social distancing measures that have to come in. Because at that point, it's like, okay, you can't suddenly all of, you know, magically whip up everybody getting tested and contact tracing. That takes a little bit of time. So the idea of social distancing, I can understand why the governors who are concerned about this suddenly were thinking, okay, this is going to be enormously costly, but we do need to slow the spread by getting people to stay at home. So that way we have time to ramp up the public health system and also ramp up testing and contact tracing. So that did happen in several states. But I would have thought at the same time, there would have been somebody that was trying to help counties figure out where to go next as far as the next part of the response. And from everyone I've talked to and everything I've heard, I feel like a lot of public health departments were sort of let out on their own to make their own decisions and to figure out how to execute them. So then how does it look now? So we're two months and nearly a week on, and obviously it's a completely transformed situation from what you discovered on the 1st of March. So now, if the question was put, given the mess that the United States is in, what should be the number one priority today? Mike Ryan at the World Health Organization, he at some point said something that was clever that was like, the things that countries should do, and this would also apply for states, the things that the states or countries should do when they don't have a lot of transmission is to make sure they do testing, contact tracing, and isolating of positive cases or quarantining of those who are very likely positive. Those things are the same that places should do if they have a lot of cases. So unfortunately, it's the same response. It doesn't just get easier or change. I think in the U.S., my own opinion and is seeing as you can't just suddenly do contact tracing in a place like New York, which has so many positive cases, I would like to see at least a rollout start because it takes time to figure out how to how to do these things. And, and my thought is I feel like it should also start by focusing on the places where we know that transmission is very high, like shared settings. We know nursing homes, jails, homeless shelters, people who have to work together, such as meat, as in meatpacking plants. How can we make transmission slow down in those high-risk settings? And how far do you think it's possible now, given the way that things have gone in the United States, including the different levels of cases and deaths in the individual states to now get to the point of having some kind of national coordination? Because it seems to me that what's happened in, in the US is, is that actually the politics of this have got more difficult as it's gone on, not less difficult, because there's clear regional patterns to the outbreak. I think we're continuing to see that different states are doing different things. So there's, I haven't heard of a federal plan that clearly lays out what happens next. 
so it is it's it's becoming something that's happening on a state by state basis i guess ideally you have some states that can show that they've done a good job and maybe set a model for other states to follow that would be nice but i don't know what that state is right now and if you look at this from a global perspective the same thing applies different nation states are at different stages of their experience of the disease and have different experiences now some have been obviously much more successful we're always being told about the places whether it's New Zealand or Vietnam or elsewhere um, that have crushed the curve maybe rather than just flattened it there are the places where it is still rising rapidly Brazil Russia maybe India if you take a kind of global perspective where should our priority be if if there were coordinated global action which there isn't but say there was some organization will come on to the WHO in a second but say there was some organization that could coordinate and target resources at a global level what should we be prioritizing do you think what we could really use as far as like a global coordinating body the thing that could really use help is somebody to think very hard about supply chain issues because we can't all be fighting for the same supplies. That certainly also really sets back places that don't have the same resources as, say, the U.S. does. Tests can be done in a number of ways, actually. There's various protocols to do tests. So somebody who could manage saying, if this group over here is using these kind of tests, we're going to reserve this stuff for them and also make sure it gets there. So I feel like there's a lot to be said for supply chain management right now. And Boris Johnson convened a meeting yesterday in the UK, a global meeting to try and emphasize that from his point of view, the the hunt for a vaccine should be the number one international priority. That is the magic bullet as far as he's concerned. Is he, is he right to prioritize that at this stage? I, I wouldn't argue against money for vaccine development. And the more I see in the US, maybe the vaccine is our way out of this, which might not be for another 18 months. That doesn't feel like a useless diversion of funds to me. Isn't there a really hard question here is is we can say that in the ideal world, not that you know, we live in anything remotely like an ideal world, that the solution is a is a vaccine and then there would need to be uh, international coordination and cooperation about the distribution of that vaccine. Otherwise, you can see all kinds of problems um, developing. But it seems to me that it's um, it's a huge bet to say that the vaccine would come in any quick time horizons. So isn't part of the problem that we now all face is that we need to work on several fronts simultaneously in the sense of what do we do if there is a vaccine that's going to be relatively quickly come available and what do we do if there isn't and who makes the judgments about what the, the likelihood of each scenario is? So... I think vaccine funding is great, but I don't think it should pull away from funds for the basic health response, the public health response, which we know works, which I've seen work in other places that has worked in other countries for this disease now. That response needs to be funded, the one that is test, contact, trace, isolate people and quarantine people. And remember, that takes other resources because you want to be able to also support people who might be quarantined and have no other source of income and also mitigate this by making sure you can try and lessen the spread of this. If we're going to open up businesses, which businesses and how can you decrease the spread? That also takes a lot of funding. So that's going to take a lot of money. And it's not just one or the other, because like you said, we may not have a vaccine and also waiting 18 months means a whole lot of people are going to die. 
And knowing that there is a here and now way to start getting this under control, it just seems absurd to not do that. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. In the case of the Ebola outbreaks, as you were saying, the the role of the WHO is absolutely crucial partly in the absence of other forms of governmental support. We are now in the context of this crisis, seeing the deep politicization of the WHO. I mean, it it becoming a kind of political football. It's part of the contest between the United States and China. There's deep suspicion. Funding has been withdrawn in the US case. Is it still the best bet as a coordinating body for what has to come next. I mean, at some level, someone's got to coordinate this at a global level. It is a global pandemic. Is the WHO still the thing that we, we're going to need to rely on? It absolutely is. It's not just that there's not flaws within the WHO, but they have a lot of experience from many years of working with 194 member states. So they've had people in those places who work with those governments who know the context really well. So we absolutely need them to be coordinating this. And I can't think of any other group that can do it. And I think right now I've there's some moves within the US administration to instead channel money into NGOs, non-governmental organizations, instead of the World Health Organization. And the problem there is that there's no NGO that works in all of these countries. And they also might not know how the governments work. So they, they can't actually influence how the whole country functions. They might be able to set up a clinic, but they're not going to be able to do the kind of integrated work that, that the WHO can. How do you get around then the problem in the, of the political legitimation of the, the WHO? Because regardless of what objective judgment might be made about what the WHO can do in the, in the poorest countries in, in the world, it's still got to have some way of getting around the problem of President Trump's response to it. I mean, this it's, seems to me like, like yeah. it's a really difficult political problem we're now faced is, is because the organisation that is supposed to coordinate an international response to a pandemic has taken in terms of its political legitimacy. I'm not making a judgment about whether this is you know, objectively true or not. I'm just saying is, is in terms of its actual political legitimacy, the way that it's perceived to some extent, not just in the United States, but in other Western democracies too, is it's not seen the way that it was three months ago. It's pretty dangerous too. I think a lot of the critiques of the World Health Organization, I worry that they often come from people who don't understand what the organization can and can't do, and also sort of their small size. They're certainly not among the top UN agencies. There's far larger UN agencies. Their budget's pretty small. It's around $2 billion, which is similar to the budget of, you know, big universities. I mean, if you compare it to the U.S. CDC, that has a budget of $12 billion. So far larger. And the CDC is mainly working in the U.S. 
their budget's small and also their power is sort of small by design. Member states have said that they, the WHO doesn't have the power to punish countries such as by, you know, imposing sanctions or something like that. So they don't have a lot of power to tell people what to do. I'm saying all of this because I think there's a lot of misunderstandings about what the WHO can and can't do and what they're able to do and sort of some of their weaknesses aren't going to change by giving them less money. Their position is inherently complicated, and I don't think there's a way to get around that. I mean, they're made up of member states, and every country has its own priorities and its own context and its own things that it's grappling with. So that does sort of divide their attention in a number of ways. And I really don't think that there's some other organization that could possibly handle all of this in a way that's drastically different from the WHO. In a way, that's quite a bleak message that this is both the indispensable organization for this pandemic, and it is completely not just under-resourced, but in many ways, ill-equipped to tackle it. I mean, it sounds like a pretty grim situation that we're facing, that the, the, the organization that we have to rely on is probably not up to the challenge. I think it's only not up to the challenge if you think the challenge is something else. Like if you assume that the challenge is that they need to tell China what to do or something, then no, it's not up to that. But as far as moving through diplomacy, there is some sort of power in that. And I think I got an inside glimpse of that by when I was in DRC, I was with Dr. Tedros and I you know, met the minister of health with him and I met various leaders with him. And I sort of got to see a little bit about what it looks like on the inside. Also, when I, when I was in Nigeria, I spent time with the WHO person who works alongside the public health organization there. So no, they don't have the power to enforce things with law or with punishments, but they do work through diplomacy and sort of relationships. There is a lot of power in that. So if we want a WHO that can say, and this is something they're doing, for example, if a WHO representative is in Nigeria and is able to say, these are the drugs that other countries are trying, and here's a kind of a design for a clinical trial that could work well here, and here are some diagnostic tests that have been vetted very well, and kind of give guidance that way. That's super strong, and that is what we really want right now. And if they're also, while they're with those countries, they're taking stock of what's the death toll and what are the supply chain needs and communicating that, what we really need is communication between countries and lessons learned from other countries, and they are in a very strong position to do that. So I do think that they're well-equipped. I think they only become poorly equipped when we're expecting them to, you know, criticize countries and have countries even listen to them. I mean, Dr. Tedros from early on, definitely throughout February, was saying countries need to prepare for this. It's a high risk. They should prepare for this. We should be testing, contact tracing, quarantining, and the, the U.S. didn't listen and still hasn't listened. So if we expect WHO to come in and say, you really have to listen to us or else we're going to do this, then no, they're not good at that. So I guess it's all a matter of what your expectation is for them. So what's the future look like from where you sit? So you're in San Francisco, you've covered disease and the science and the politics of disease in different parts of the world. We are now in an unprecedented situation. So there's nothing presumably in your experience that matches up to this. When you think about the shape of this, both within the US and internationally, going forward 12, 18 months and beyond, 
do you feel that this is still really unknown that we 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 have no sense at this point about where we're heading or relative to those moments of shock that you described along the way as you saw it getting out of hand do you have more of a feeling that you have a sense of the trajectory of this I unfortunately don't I think that's because I haven't seen very many clear plans for what I've heard lots of people put forward plans or ideas for plans about how we get out of this, but I haven't seen that at a federal level. We're still not seeing the kind of leadership that I think is just sort of necessary right now. It could be that there's just waves of this where we'll have a loosening up of restrictions and then cases going up and then we have a tightening of restrictions. So that could be the future or maybe kind of best case scenario, testing drastically ramps up. I'm always in communication with researchers and at nature and they're thinking of new ways to test. So maybe testing drastically ramps up and different states start thinking of a really coordinated approach to kind of doing precision control for this. And maybe that starts to really change things in certain states. So I would like to see that happen. But it's hard for me to make predictions because I don't know if it's going to happen. And does testing ramping up here mean more reliable tests or tests more reliably deployed by the people who have them? Because you've also written about your shock that at various points in this, testing was available, and as you mentioned earlier, in various places, for whatever reason, people chose not to use it. Yeah, more tests being available and there being a network for how to plug these into the system. So, you know, I've written about how various academic labs with huge capacity ramped up their ability to do a lot of tests, but then they couldn't interface with hospitals. But maybe in the U.S., you know, we think of maybe the public health department puts together something where instead of, you know, processing tests for hospitals, they're processing tests for high-risk contacts or people in these group settings, maybe we're screening everybody in a nursing home every week or something. So a plan that sort of fits all the components together, including contact tracing and then including the quarantine efforts. So if there's a plan like that that starts functioning, that would be fantastic. I have heard Governor Newsom of California just announced yesterday that they're going to be adding 20,000 contact tracers over the next two months. So there's some positive signs on the horizon that some states are beginning to think about this seriously and, and put a budget in place. And I can only hope that that moves things forward successfully. I think that one of the things that we, the governments have got to think about is, is how you go forward on the health front and the economic front simultaneously. Because I think that one of the things that's going to happen on the, the economic front is that if economies get restarted and then the health response is not as effective when they are restarted as we might hope that it is and then we have to go back to essentially to lockdown or some version of lockdown then I think that the economic consequences of that a second time round are going to be on a different level than what they are the first time round I mean and I think they're bad enough the the first time round so one of the things that concerns me is is how joined up our health response and our economic response um, are and the ways in which we can think about the risks across both of them simultaneously you know a key question is if you're asking people to stay home there also needs to be a way to support those people when they're home so the number of small businesses and restaurants and bars and you know, you name it, the number of small businesses that are going to be going 
out of business right now and driving people into bankruptcy, that's enormous. So in order to not have public pushback and also help support people in doing the socially responsible thing and staying home, some of the budget towards public health certainly has to also be towards letting people survive through this so that we don't see homelessness increasing and things like that. It is all wrapped up together. I think one concern is thinking back to 2008, there was a big bailout for banks. So I think in the U.S. there's a very real concern that the people who might be okay through all of this are the people who least need the money. So that's, that's kind of one concern that I think a lot of people are fairly floating right now. You write for the world's most prestigious science journal. You write about science and medicine, but also about politics and the social impacts of various events. As you look at this one, a lot of people view it in different ways. So some people feel that after a period where everything had become politicized, particularly in places like the United States, but also in Britain around Brexit, we've had a couple of months where people speaking in the name of scientific expertise are getting more of a hearing than they used to. And that there is an appetite from not from everyone, but from many people to listen to experts and to listen to what they think of as the facts. From other people's perspective, we're just seeing the deeper politicization of everything. So even now, those experts who are put in front of the public to give us the facts are immediately swamped by rival political accounts of what we think they're up to, and they get caught up in the polarized moment. Is it your sense as someone writing for a a science publication that there's more politicization of science going on at the moment relative to what you've seen in the past, or that some aspects of this are breaking away from, from politics? I guess I would just say that for me personally, I mean, I can't speak for all of nature, but I think on the whole, nature tries to stay away from overly politicizing something. I think, I, I guess I'm personally aware that scientific statements can have a political tinge to them now. So for example, I just saw a study yesterday out of Seattle. Now, like I mentioned, Seattle, in addition to being a place where it seems like they had an early introduction of COVID, they also have a, a really strong public health system and, and a lot of infectious disease specialists. They've been testing for a long time to a greater extent than a lot of places and also reporting the data and studying the data. So I saw a study out of Seattle that showed that they predicted that about 2% of the population has been infected since, I can't remember the date, but maybe January 20th. And 2% is a pretty low number. And what's interesting is that's now suddenly a political statement. And this is, I should say, this isn't with an antibody test to see what were prior infections, but it's based on how many people actually have tested positive in the population. And it's a model based on that. So it's political because people who are sort of saying, let's do less because there's already so many people infected. This is already out of control. Let's aim for herd immunity. Those people sort of want there to be a large number of the population that's infected, which would show that this isn't as deadly as we thought. And therefore, there's a lot of herd immunity and we don't have to be afraid of getting this anymore. So therefore, we can open up the economy and don't have to do anything again. So suddenly this 2% becomes a number that can be political. And I guess I'm just aware of that now when I'm writing. And so everything I see, I have to keep in mind how, how will this be used? And also, can I dispel it being misused in some sort of way and just sort of put it in the clearest terms that I can. Does it extend to the thought that 
people are saying, well, that number is just the number that you'd expect from those people, you know, that there's an assumption. And you see it a lot. I mean, we're, we're used to it on social media and elsewhere that the assumption is always not what was said, but who said it. And that you, you begin with the who and then you get to the what. And in this case, the, you know, the number is the number that those people would say, wouldn't they? I mean, are we at that point where people are just saying, well, you would think that, wouldn't you? That's your number. Yeah, I mean, I think that, and this is where the modeling, you know, for me personally, it gets almost, it can be kind of ridiculous because that's based on sometimes even less sort of data and, and more assumptions. And so, yeah, those can be used by either side to prove their point. And that's, that's a misuse as far as I can tell. I, I don't know if this is of interest, but I was thinking when I was talking before and it popped to mind later, I was thinking, I think what's interesting is the things that President Trump is saying about the WHO as far as collusion with China and they didn't give a fair warning. The idea about a fair warning is just categorically like it's not true because it's clear if you look at their situation reports beginning the first week of January that the WHO was worried about this. January 23rd is when they said there's human to human transmission. This is a risk to the world. They were worried about it. And then January 30th, they rang what is the highest alarm for the WHO under the international health regulations. That's the public health emergency of international concern. So that's the absolute highest alarm that they can ring under the international health regulations. As a communicator, as a journalist, I can say this word, public health emergency of international concern, a fake or a fake, depending on who you talk to, that's kind of like a wonky term. So I sometimes wonder if like, you know, the problem isn't so much that the the WHO did ring the high alarm, but maybe there's a problem in that people don't really know what to do with that word. They said that there was a pandemic later on, but that's not even kind of official declaration. That's not something that's listed under these international health regulations, which is a very serious set of laws that were put in place in 2005. So I feel like when we go back and think about what could have been different here, I think a real assessment of how the international health regulations work and when declarations are made or not made and whether pandemic is a part of it, I feel like that's the kind of stuff that should be talked about and worked on. And also what is the effect? Like what actually happens when you declare a FAIC and what actually happens when you characterize something as a pandemic and what happens when you say something's high risk? I feel like the way that these classifications work, that should be reassessed. And when I talk to analysts, this is the thing that they'll talk about. And it's not the set of concerns that the Trump administration has. They're just two separate does it go things. To, and does it go to Helen's point that when you're dealing with a country like ours, like yours, like the US or the UK, that really isn't psychologically prepared for this? I mean, we are now, but we weren't then. And when we weren't, on the one hand, if you ring the bell louder and give it some scary name, people will say the WHO was being alarmist. And if they don't ring the bell loudly enough, people will say, you didn't tell us. I mean, it's almost hard to think, looking back, what would have been effective. Of course, that's always the trick about classifying anything. And, and even, you know, the New York Times had a story where they exposed a lot of the warnings that did get through to the president. WHO had a mission in China in mid-February where there was somebody from the CDC and there was somebody from the U.S. National Institutes of Health who were on that trip. Their warnings were clearly made apparent to the administration. And we know that even before that, 
the head of health and human services, he warned the president that this was something to look at. So it's not that the warnings weren't there. The warnings were there. I think um, we just now know they weren't being taken seriously. Isn't the problem here, and it extends very directly to President Trump, but I think that it goes well beyond him too, is is that we just didn't have a, a politics in Western democracies that was in any way psychologically or existentially set up or equipped to respond to anything that came out of the World Health Organization. So if you had a politics which actually understood the risk of pandemic and you saw that the president wasn't responding to things that the the WHO were um, saying, then you would expect political pressure to build around that response. But whilst there's been lots of political pressure in quite a number of countries, obviously, including the United States and in Britain, since governments actually started responding in some ways, often particularly at the beginning, not very um, effectively, is there was no politics of the pandemic in the United States or in Britain back in February. Yeah, we were oblivious to it. I mean, I can say yeah. that. <laughs> I, I was not listening out for a no. WHO warning. No, the same with me. I wouldn't yeah. have known what one was. Yeah, that's true. I mean, and it's funny, yeah. it's because that I've been following WHO. Of course, I've been listening to their press briefings. So to me, it's like, of course, they've been warning about this, but it didn't make it through. It must, in a way, make you feel unusual to be someone who is so attuned to taking these things seriously, living in a society. And you're in San Francisco, mm-hmm. you're in California, you know, there are places in the United States where it would be even more unusual. But to be aware that other people just don't hear it. Yeah, it is kind of funny. I was, I had a lot of conversations in early March with friends that were you know, still planning on going on their vacations or having parties in early March, right after my trip to Seattle. And it was like, wait, how could they possibly be doing this? But of course, you know, I forget that a lot of people aren't paying attention to this sort of news. And if their policymakers aren't imposing restrictions on travel or on gatherings, then they're going to assume it's fine. And do you think, going back to where we started, a word that really grabs people's attention in the West and terrifies them is Ebola. Mm-hmm. I mean, it has a kind of you know, totemic quality. And I think almost everyone would have thought, I mean, we, we've just talked about that you saw the parallels, but you know, most people early on in this thought this was something completely different. So you've got Ebola, one point of comparison, and you've got the flu, the other point of comparison. And people were talking about this in relation to the flu. They were not talking about this in relation to Ebola. Did it need something like that? I mean, that's almost the only word I can think of that would have got people's attention. And yet, no doubt, it would have provoked people to say this is absurd and alarmist. But there's almost nothing else that that does grab people's attention in that way. Well, I almost wonder if I think Ebola had even been defanged because we did do a pretty good job of keeping it from spreading in the West Africa outbreak. It was really just confined to the three countries, Sierra Leone, Liberia, and Guinea. So because it never spread to the world, there was so much fear during that outbreak in which 11,000 people died. So there was so much fear during that outbreak that I think the second one in DRC, the second largest in the world, that outbreak, there seemed to be a lot less concern in the U.S. It was almost bizarre. You know, when I returned from the Democratic Republic of Congo in 2019, I was in the hot zone. I was in the city that was hit hardest in Beni and Butembo. And nobody at the airport when I came into the U.S. asked, 
hey, have you been in an Ebola zone? I just had my passport stamped and I was welcomed back to the U.S. So I think the fact that all of the alarm during Ebola seemed to be like unnecessary because it never did break out here. I wonder how much that made some people and some leaders less willing to take alarms seriously for this one. And of course, there's some big differences between this disease and Ebola, which namely asymptomatic spread. That seems like that's going to be a, a big problem in getting this under control. At least with Ebola, people are pretty clearly sick when they have it. So that's something that's a lot that's a lot easier to, to control. So maybe in a way, the message almost had to be, this isn't Ebola. You should be more scared of this one because this one can spread in the ways that Ebola couldn't. Yeah. But it's a bit late now. It's a bit late now. And, you know, in addition to just alarm, there needed to be concrete plans and budgets. There had to be money spent on monitoring people coming from any places where there's outbreaks. There had to be money spent on ramping up tests. And those budgets weren't there. So it's not just people have to be afraid. It's that policymakers had to put together cohesive plans and put aside a budget for those plans. You can find Amy's writing at Nature, but we will also tweet links to her articles on many of the themes we talked about there at tppodcast underscore. As we hope you might have heard, we do have another podcast now too called Talking Politics, History of Ideas. It's me talking about some of the big ideas from the history of modern politics. We're putting out 12 episodes. By the end of this week, we're on number seven. You will need to subscribe to a new podcast. Wherever you get Talking Politics, you can find Talking Politics, History of Ideas. We really hope you'll enjoy them. Next week on this podcast, we're going to be talking about British politics and the Labour Party in the current crisis. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. What yeah, do you I was going to say, I, sorry, Helen, Go on, you David. Go. No, no, you go. No, you go. Okay. okay.